And so everything you want is what you get online. And based on everything you've wanted, the computer algorithms predict what you'll want next. So it's you're kind of suspended in what I would call a want mode. And you're getting very good at wanting, which means you're getting very good at never being satisfied. Consciousness, the notion of the self, personality structure, transactional analysis, symbiosis, Zen Buddhism, teacher-student, relationships, training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space, the virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Andrew Archer. Thanks for joining me. I want to kind of give an overview of the podcast, specifically this series of podcasts in terms of what it's going to be about, how it's going to go. And to do that, I want to give you a little bit of background on myself. I'm a clinical social worker, been practicing since about 2008 when I was finishing up my graduate school uh, for my master's in social work at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so I've had a lot of time in the uh, psychotherapy room diagnosing, uh, analyzing people's personality structure, that sort of thing. Uh, But with this podcast in this series, I want to talk specifically about the virtual world, the the digital, uh, the social media, the, the time we spend in front of the screen, gaming, texting, emailing, all that. I'm just bringing it down to the simple virtual world as a way to describe the amalgam of um, devices that are literally attached to our bodies that are online, they're connected, they're creating data based on what we're doing in the real world and on what we're doing in the virtual space. So back in 2008, when I was doing the master's in social work, I noticed that a lot of people were talking about Facebook sort of at dinner parties or in casual conversation. This was, you know, three or four years after Facebook had started. It really didn't have any traction, certainly not in our global economy. It's a powerhouse now. For me, it was a joke. And the stuff we put on there was really meaningless and uh, just kind of funny. And of course, this is well before the news feed was even on there. But I thought it was really kind of disturbing that this kind of nascent social network was really intruding on our social relations. And so I decided to do a thesis related to uh, activity on the internet. And I was pulling a couple different ideas together. I was studying loneliness and also e-therapy, which you could kind of think of now as as telehealth and... um, the, the virtual meetings, et cetera, that didn't exist back in 2008 really at all. But I was looking at these things through the lens of activity, 
on the internet, time spent on the internet, when it was really a separate thing back then, there was a distinction between the virtual and the real world. And I think that has all but blurred and maybe completely gone away in 2021. And where I started was looking at the dissemination rates of different forms of technology. The telephone, you know, when it was invented, took a lot of time before every American household had a telephone. Then you jump to the radio, same thing, the television. We're talking about decades and decades, going from dial-up to high-speed internet to the smartphone. And the dissemination rate of the smartphone is extremely, was extremely rapid, way faster than the television. So in 2007, you have the first iPhone. By 2011, the dissemination rate of the smartphone, meaning, you know, did the majority of uh, people in the U.S. have a smartphone, it had already reached that tipping point by 2010, 2011, where it Basically, everyone has a smartphone. Of course, I was living in New Hampshire during that time, and I, I got rid of my BlackBerry for various reasons. But So I was interested, you know, 12, 13 years ago, about how our social relations were being affected by Internet use. And, and the kind of obvious conclusion about some of this back then was that you have kind of two options uh, for people Individuals that tend to do well socially used and, ad- and had advantages based on spending more time on the internet versus people that were lonely and depressed and not doing well socially, the more time they spent on the internet, sort of the worse things got for them. So this real dichotomy, this kind of bifurcation of the internet, of course, is connected with inequality and socioeconomic status too. But so it's complicated. You can't just say internet good, internet bad, especially back in 2008 when I was doing um, that research. So since then, I've really paid close attention to what's happening in terms of changes with internet-related technology and how it's affecting social discourse. And it's pretty clear to everyone we're at a very hyper-polarized place, especially online. And so I kind of want to examine that with this podcast and, and using transactional analysis to kind of diagnose the problem of our relationship with the virtual world. Transactional analysis was developed by Eric Byrne. His first book on transactional analysis came out in 1951. He's a psychiatrist. He was medically trained. He studied Freudian psychoanalysis. And he, he develops this rather simple model for the personality structure of the self. In transactional analysis, the personality structure is set up as three autonomous, distinct ego states. Uh, You can imagine three circles, almost like a snow person. The top is a parent ego state, the middle is adult, and the bottom is child ego state. And the characteristics of the parent-adult child are power, possibility, and potency. Parent ego state is either critical or nurturing. It's an externally programmed state of mind, so it's transmitted from the parents and the caregivers across generations 
ways of living, directives, injunctions. The adult ego state is what's called the neo-psyche, or new information, learning, memory. Uh, it is not conditioned like the parent or the child's ego state. It's objective, it's processing information, it's a responsible state of mind, sincere. It's like the Buddhist term emptiness. And then we also have what sometimes is called the inner child or the voice that came online when we were about three or four years old that they call the child ego state. And the parent and the child are often in conflict. And that internal contradiction between the two, you know, the parent ego state says you should do this, like your parents said how you should live in a way, and the child says, well, I want to do this. And the old term for that was neuroses. And so with transactional analysis, you see that that's a normal and natural process to have these internal conflicts because we're not singular. We're not a solid self-determined self, which is what Western culture um, has us immersed in. It's inscribed in the present moment. So with transactional analysis, you have the parent, adult, and child. The child is this archaic felt sense of how things were. It feels like our personality, who we are, and it's potent in my mind because that's how you influence people. You say, I'm Andrew, I grew up in South Minneapolis, and we moved to Bloomington when I was eight or nine years old, and I played baseball and basketball, et cetera. You tell the story about yourself as the child ego state. It's about identity creation, which from a Buddhist perspective is actually the problem itself. Uh, with that, we crave for what we want. What we want is based on our sense of identity, our self-identity. The last ego state is the adult, which is rational and objective. And it's a kind of approximation to what Zen refers to as emptiness. Emptiness doesn't mean nothingness or um, some kind of existential nihilism. It just means the possibility, the potentiality for anything or just about anything um, to happen. And so with the adult state, there are many possibilities if you can focus your attention, if you can sort of control the child and the parent state, accept, you know, aspects of that conditioning are going to come up in your mind, but they're not actually reality itself. So the adult state is about reality testing. And as we'll talk about this um, personality structure, there's the idea of symbiosis. Symbiosis is when two people become one in terms of the interpersonal version of this. Uh, in Taoism, they have this saying, not two, not one. And so symbiosis is different than codependency because if you're consciously aware of the symbiosis, what you're doing is just cathecting the appropriate ego state or ego states. The example of a mother and an infant, the mother is or could be characterized as being in control, the power of the parent state to choose uh, the possibilities for the different frames of reference, what to pay attention to, making probability assessments. So that allows the infant to be in this potent state of mind, whatever they want 
We reflexively give to them. We take care of their needs constantly, and they are not able to have any adult or parent ego state functioning. They're totally helpless and dependent and vulnerable. So that same idea of symbiosis carries over into our other relationships, and we need to be diligent about recognizing what state of mind the other is in and how do we merge with them rather than uh, competing and challenging. So symbiosis is based on mutual needs. The issue with symbiosis is passivity. So if in relationship, like a mother and infant, if one person is always in one state of mind, states of mind, and the other person is in that that final state of mind, so you have three ego states rather than six, the lack of conscious awareness uh, leads to passivity, including in the form of discounting. So think of a simple example of in an intimate relationship, one partner does all the cooking and grocery shopping and the other person cleans up and handles the finances or something like that. If the person who does the cooking is gone, the other person can say, well, I don't know how to cook. I can't do that. He or she always does the cooking, so I guess I'm going to starve to death. Is they discount their own ability to take care of themselves, to be in relationship. That's the issue with symbiosis. And the connection with the virtual world is that these tech monopolies have the power to Uh, censor and limit our possibilities for what we see and certainly the frames of reference everything is about competition in the virtual space so they function uh, as the control and choice through computer mediated algorithms to give us what we want so we're in this perpetual uh, infant like state of mind a simple consciousness where we're just wanting craving And the machine gets better at predicting what we want, which means we get better at not being satisfied, forever wanting. And this is an issue of what Buddhism calls karma that we'll talk about uh, in this program is creating drama, creating games in in our relationships, etc. that promote what in transactional analysis they call the life script. So we're going to see how This symbiotic relationship, human-machine symbiosis that's happening, which, like a mother and infant, we see uh, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, they know everything about us. I mean, if you're not on Facebook, Facebook knows more about you than when you, if you are on Facebook. So they know everything about us. We know nothing about them or their methods. And if you read Shoshana Zuboff's book, the age of surveillance capitalism, you understand the economic logic, which is to take and mine all the data associated with all human behaviors, the sort of end goal, uh, which I really tie to as an example, the, the fictional example of the film The Truman Show with Jim Carrey, where Truman Burbank is adopted by a television corporation in utero. And he has this script, a literal script for um, how to live. And, and the idea with that show in the film is it's a total human record of Truman Burbank. Everything that he's ever done is documented. And that's the idea of Google, Microsoft, etc. The logic is 
maybe it's believed, maybe it's not, is if we know everything about you, we can predict your behavior, maybe then we'll be in a safer society, etc. But the power that these corporations, these multinational corporations have, uh, as we're seeing in the cancel culture, is certainly too much and not something that my kids are going to be able to uh, opt out of, literally or just so to speak. So that's the other aspect of this podcast is I have three young children uh, that I've had the opportunity to watch the personality structure develop in real time. I wouldn't know anything about transactional analysis if it wasn't for my four-year-old son, my two-year-old son, and my four-month-old daughter. So I'm really scared and concerned about the future for them. And this despair about the world is driving my motivation to understand and communicate what are pretty complex um, issues and things going on. Shortly after my second uh, child was born in the winter of 2019, I had finished reading Dar Jamal's book, The End of Ice. Uh, he wasn't talking about immigration and detention centers, but he was talking actually about uh, the glaciers, what's happening with the climate emergency, how the earth is heating up, and uh, the positive feedback loops within that. So as the earth gets hotter, more of the the heat is trapped in the oceans. As the oceans become hotter, they come, become more acidic as they're more... As there's more acid, uh, this kills the uh, coral reefs. Uh, the coral reefs have a quarter of all the biodiversity in the ocean. So you have the smaller fish dying off, which affects the food chain. Uh, it's basically this sort of domino effect that we can't really see in a linear time frame. And Dar Jamail's uh, sort of question within this uh, kind of witnessing the Earth dying. I mean, he sees it as a as uh, the planet uh, on their deathbed, so to speak, is is what are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? What are we going to devote it to? And reading this book just after my second son was born, you know, brought up a lot of despair, um, confusion, uh, critiques of uh, the economic system, the political system, and that despair is very corrosive. And so I decided I was going to do something. I didn't know exactly what, but I connected with some friends about some writings and, and started kind of on this um, road. And much of it was paved based on my training in Zen Buddhism. And the aim of Zen is, you know, to become enlightened or nirvana. Satori is the Japanese word for it. Uh, and really the... The emphasis of Zen is to look at our own cravings. And craving is understood as, as natural, as part of our human natures that we want for ourselves. But it's kind of a, a collective misunderstanding of ourselves, is what David Loy refers to in Ecodharma, is that we're not really separate from the earth. We come out of all the emerging conditions and causality of everything else that's happening, uh, but we've distanced ourselves from nature in obvious ways. 
so my my training in Zen Buddhism started in 2009, uh, and I've had a significant meditation practice since then. And I just decided that that was going to you know come front and center, including my work with psychotherapy clients. Uh, but as I started looking at the uh, the virtual world, it became clear to me that this is a want mode system. Want, you know, is the same as desire or crave. Uh, and that we want because we have this sense of lack. Uh, we're not good enough. We're not competent enough, etc. And so we grasp at how things are, how we we would like them to be, or how we would like ourselves to change and be different. And we become attached to this want or craving. And I think the, uh, what's kind of termed the attention economy now is exploiting that part of human nature, part of us that wants or says mine, gimme, that kind of thing. And so with the writing, I am using this method of transactional analysis to to understand and explain uh, the personality structure or the sense of self uh, as a means to look at this larger um, system. I mean, when you think of cyberspace or the virtual world, it's uh, what you want is what you get. So you escape into this this stimulated reality uh, and everything you've ever wanted is is categorized and collected uh, through machine learning and stored in the cloud and that data predicts what you're going to want so you watch a YouTube video and then it tells you the next best thing so everything you want is there but you're suspended in this state of wanting and the machine of virtual reality is aimed at giving us exactly what we want. But if you get very good at what you want, uh, you're never actually satisfied. And that's kind of what Zen Buddhism looks at. And focusing on uh, the notion of interdependence or the lack of self-existing entities... Uh, specifically the ego. So, back to this, you know, idea of uh, the economic logic of these corporations. The easiest way to think about them is through um, examples from literature. The book uh, The Circle by Dave Eggers uh, is a novel about a protagonist who works at essentially a Google or Facebook place is called the circle and so we can talk about that as a way to understand what's happening to us in the virtual world and then we can go to other examples like the memory police which is a japanese novel written in 1994 about what it looks like in a kind of hyper individualistic age what kind of examples do we have to understand basically how we are in the world that i think can be captured just in this idea that pretty much all of us are walking around uh, thinking that we're completely insane and trying not to look crazy most of the time because of the 
dominant ideology of individualism, we are essentially managing ourselves all the time. And that comes out as self-tracking, self-improvement, you know, self-help, relying on experts, etc. Because we're competing not only with everyone else, but with ourselves. And so we can talk about the dominant ideology of hyper-individualism. We use examples that way. But in essence, uh, we're becoming these little managers. And we're managing the status quo we're preemptively trying to avoid emotions, people-pleasing, uh, because of how precarious and unstable everything is. Even though on the surface it looks like, you know, um, in a lot of ways things are great here in the U.S. Uh, for people, everyone is right on the edge of collapse, uh, if they're not already, uh, economically speaking. So we're, we're reaching for more control, and I'm really pulling from my experience as a psychotherapist in terms of what I'm seeing writ large with my clients is trying to make sense of it in terms of the economic, political system. Uh, and so the other thing that we can talk about is these uh, games people play, is the, the language of Eric Byrne uh, from Transactional Analysis is we can understand these familiar roles that we orient towards, which creates drama. Uh, and this creates stress and, and certainly mental health issues. There's a simple mo model to understand that. But again, drama and karma are basically interchangeable. And so the, the issue uh, from a Zen perspective is, okay, we all suffer be, to be alive and to be conscious means you're going to suffer. And with that, there's patterns to why you're suffering. And if you can identify those patterns, let go of the attachment to greed, hatred, and delusion, uh, then you can go beyond uh, that conditioning or karma uh, and act in ways that are uh, more improvisational, uh, in a virtualistic or virtuosity, virtuosity? Uh, that's a tough word to say, let alone spell. Virtuosity that's improvisational. Okay. Meaning you're not just acting out of habit the way that you were conditioned. There's the part of the personality structure that feels essentially not okay or a sense of lack and is from that place that we play out these games. And these games promote the life script, according to transactional analysis. So these are the things that we'll get into more in depth in this podcast. So if you're interested in psychotherapy, if you're interested in the mind, Zen and transactional analysis, these are the philosophies, the methodologies that we can use to understand something that's very complex, which is the virtual world. But the short version of it is that we're in this passive, you know, almost a codependent kind of relationship with the virtual space. Um, and I don't think anybody's feeling any better about themselves. The, the kind of irony in this is that, you know, I'm working on this podcast that's within the virtual world. Uh, and, you know, the, the real trap, especially in American culture, is if you ascend at all uh, within the system, you end up reinforcing uh, the system and getting sucked into it. So here I am sitting alone 
in a podcast studio, you know, essentially talking to myself about these things. And that's really exactly where uh, the ruling elites want us to be, is to be in, in little rooms by ourselves, connected, monitored, uh, surveilled. So those are really the, the things that I want to get into with it, this podcast. And again, it's a, it's a book that I'm working on right now called Craving. So I'm going to go kind of chapter by chapter through some of this uh, information and hopefully it's interesting, learn from it, Um, but that's kind of an introduction to the podcast. Thanks for listening to The Subversive Therapist. I'm Andrew Archer.